Welcome to another episode of Columbine and them and you and me and everybody. Today, we'll resume the story of Zach Rissmiller. Thank you so much for sharing, Zach. And how the person you are now is influenced by what you experienced at Columbine? It's 100% experienced by what I went through at Columbine. I would not be the person I am. And I think that's a two-edged sword, right? I'd prefer not to be influenced by such an awful thing. But what it did teach me, and I didn't really understand that until way later, is that every single day, like I was taught at age 18, how absolutely fragile life is and how quickly it can be taken from you. And I think that when I think about that, I don't want to spend my life in a desk doing engineering work. I did engineering because of what my father did and it's what his father did and his father before him. So it's just kind of like what I was supposed to do. And when I got into it, I hated it. I hated every minute of it. Doing what I do for a job now makes me happy every day. It makes other people happy. And in very meaningful ways, this is my art. This is what I do. I'm a very art-driven person. I love creating and have other people enjoy what I've created. It all very much has to do with Columbine and trying to get back to the person I was before Columbine, before I got, you know, super broken. <laughs> every day it's influencing me. Now... My daughter just this year learned what Columbine is. And she learned it at school. She didn't learn it from me. I have sheltered her from that part of my life because she's 10. I want her to think the world's a magical place and there can be so many wonderful and magical things through art, through history, through science. There's like all of these things that you could do to create and be creative. I don't want to burden her with the violence and the, uh, frankly, just realness of the outside world, you know? She deserves to have a childhood. My trauma doesn't need to cloud her childhood. And so when she came home from school and she was like, Dad, where did you go to high school? And I was like, why? She's like, because we learned about a thing that happened at a high school in Littleton. And I know you grew up in Littleton. I just said, let me ask you a question. Is the name of the school Columbine? And she said, yeah. That's where daddy went to school. It like hit her like gasp of air. And that was really hard to watch. When I think about Columbine, you know, I think about, you know, those years of just being broken and how I constantly feel like, have I done enough for myself mentally to be able to not slip backwards like I did? If I do slip backwards, what are those things that I'm looking for to try to diagnose that? I'm looking at myself through a Columbine lens every day because it's terrifying, right? I don't ever want to be in a position where I am not feeling emotion again. I am a very much a person who does not wish to live life emotionless. It's drab, boring. It's awful. I wish I hadn't slipped. I wish I hadn't made those mistakes. I wish I really hadn't done that stuff. That brokenness has brought me to a place and maybe even heights I may not have seen had I not been broken for a time. I like talking about it because I think that in a way for me, it's cathartic, you know, getting the things that go inside my head out. It's been years since I've had any like flashback dreams or anything like that. 
you know, when those things start happening, you know, I have to be able to know what's going on and what I need to do to deal with it. So I dive back into daily meditation. I dive back into getting myself back centered. I dive into talking consistently about what I'm going through and externalizing things instead of internalizing things. I constantly am using my eye movement stuff while I'm meditating. I force myself to do the hard things, right? Meditation along with physical activity. Been running a lot, uh, just trying to like even preparing for this, get myself into a position to where I can get myself in and out and calm, be calm through it. Make sure that I'm not putting myself in a triggerable position. It's important to me to keep talking about it. It's important that those stories stay alive. Can I ask you, uh, are you able to talk with your fiance uh, about Columbine and your, uh, uh, your mental health issues? This is the healthiest, by far the healthiest relationship I've ever been in. We talk to each other about everything. doesn't really even matter what we're talking about it. The other person can deal with it. We both have, I think she would be upset if I said why, but uh, we both have PTSD from different things in life. Uh, she was part of something that was really traumatic as well. So we understand, we speak the same language mental health wise. It's really helpful. <laughs> It's really helpful to have someone like that. So you're feeling understood as a trauma survivor? That's a great way to put it, yeah. You mentioned having survivor's guilt. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, so survivor's guilt is essentially you're in a life or death situation and had certain actions been taken differently, most likely outcomes would have been mortally different as a definition really like works hard at its core for me because I supposed to be in business class, which is right off the cafeteria, which is where they entered the school. And if I wasn't in business class and I wasn't at lunch, which would have been in the cafeteria, then I would have been in the library or the announcements studio, which was just off the library. Like there is no way that I'm not in the middle of gunfire, whether I would have been killed or whether I would have been shot, you know, we don't know those things, right? Because I can't go back and, and fix them. And survivor's guilt basically says, well, all of these other people that didn't deserve it that day, not that I deserved it either, but like, how would it have changed if I was where I was supposed to be? And it becomes this never ending loop of what if replaying situations in your head that didn't happen. It's traumatizing. It sucks so much the shitty things that my brain has done to itself over the years of beating myself up about what if you could have done something? What if you could have saved lives? Not to mention that you could have been shot or you, know, you could have been killed. My brain goes to what if you could have helped? Now you start doing this self-blame game thing where, well, if you couldn't, you didn't help. Therefore, you're also a bad person. Just a loop of bad thoughts, bad feelings over and over again that you get stuck in. It's a never-ending cycle of self-hate. It's all completely fabricated and it's all complete lies. It's just stuff that you're doing to yourself over and over and over and over again, you know? How do you cope with that? Break the cycle. Getting myself into a relaxed state so I can think rationally, first of all. And then reminding myself that maybe I could have helped, but that's not what happened. Recognizing that it was a very dangerous situation 
because I know what my instinct would have been because we thought we were being fired on in that field. Your instinct would have been to run. I remember when it was happening, I just was so confused and so disoriented. Again, we didn't know if we were being fired on from both directions. We didn't know if we were being fired on at all. This is reverberating all around us and nobody knew where gunfire was coming from. I have to remind myself that through all of that, my reaction was to run. I wouldn't have been in a position to help. I wouldn't have been in a position to do all these things. And that's okay too. It's super important to remind myself it's okay. I'm still alive. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And my daughter needs me. I usually end my thoughts with time to put those childish things aside. If you're going to make a difference in this world, it's the people in front of you. It's not the people behind you. Do you want to talk a bit about the shooters? Sure. Um, one thing that I've noticed that I'm really appreciative of is you haven't mentioned their names. There's something in kind of survivor culture. It's called no notoriety. We constantly stress not using the terrorist names because they are fucking terrorists who ruined a lot of people's lives and don't deserve notoriety for it. It's another way to try to prevent these shootings is if people's manifestos don't get out. We got to stop glorifying fucking assholes. I knew the two decently well. They were a part of the video production team that did the announcements and made short videos and that sort of thing. We were in video production class and they were editing something and laughing. Um, it's like a dubbing machine. You know, they're over there laughing. I'm not thinking about much because part of the goal of these stupid movies that we would make is to be funny. So I'm laughing and, you know, whatever. And then it was my turn to, I think it was like a couple hours later, but it was my turn to use the uh, the machine. I had left and I'd come back. I noticed that there was their tape still in there. So I wanted to see what was funny. Let's see what's fucking super funny. Fuck, it was violent. Holy shit. They had a like a bike and they were hitting it with a sledgehammer, but it wasn't like, oh, we're destroying something. It was like malicious. There was fire and firearms involved in this bike. There was like really violent and, and they kept referring to the bike by a name. I didn't know the name. They kept referring to as if it was a person and they were beating the living crap out of it, shooting it, doing all these things uh, as if it was an effigy of a person. It fucking bugged me. So I said something about it. I think they lost privileges of editing things for a while, which landed me on their fucking hit list, I found out. So yeah, I don't like those two. <laughs> I think that goes without saying. They always had a everybody hates me mentality when in reality, nobody really did. If it was a problem, then it would be like anywhere else. Honestly, kids doing stupid shit. For them, they had like something to prove, like everybody hates them. Everyone's against them. The narrative that everybody in the media ran with, to be honest, these guys weren't bullied. They were the fucking bullies. They took this narrative of everybody hates us so fucking far that they ostracized them fucking selves because they weren't bad people to start with. They just became distant. They hated everyone. And I mean that they hated everyone. And for the dumbest things, a lot of it fucking fabricated. But yeah, that became the fucking narrative after the fact of like, oh, Columbine is a haven for bullies and they've protected these people for so long. Those are literally the shooter's words and not fucking true. They wanted to kill me because I told on them for being fucking violent in a video. I believe I've been described as a bully. 
but I used to get picked on fucking constantly in elementary school. I have never wanted to try to hurt somebody intentionally. Like I've, I've never done that. But uh, again, the shooter's words and not the student's words. A lot of the narrative that came out of Columbine was taken from the shooters. I'm on a hit list and so therefore I was a bully. And their hit lists weren't a list of fucking people. It was just my name like scratched off in a fucking yearbook. I didn't know what I did other than that. I told on. In hindsight, it was exactly what I should have done. Was it hard for you, Zach, to learn you you were on their hit list? Yeah. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's another thing that plays into that survivor's guilt loop. If they would have saw me, then I would have been shot, right? Maybe I could have helped. I should be dead. This constant loop of bullshit. It sucks to learn that. I literally could have gone my entire life without learning it. But for some reason during the investigation, well, actually, I know the reason why they told me is that one of the reasons they were clearing me of any wrongdoing for what I wrote on the announcements was that, that I was scratched off in the yearbook. They didn't like me. So how could I have been involved? I couldn't have been involved because if you've known me at all for like more than five seconds, you would have realized that I have more empathy than I do anything else. I care for other people more than myself a lot. And I'm not out here to hurt anyone. My physical appearance says a different thing. You know, I'm 6'2 and I weigh 235 pounds. I'm a bigger guy. I weighed 200 pounds when I graduated high school. Like still 6'2, 200 pounds. I was a big guy. If my external appearance may make people think that I'm mean, I promise this is just teddy bear floof. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. And so you experienced yourself hopelessness, despair, but you never consider violence? Oh, no, I considered violence against myself. Being beat down and being depressed and being broken the way I was, yeah, I considered violence against myself. Um, but I never considered trying to do it to anyone else. I know how it feels to be broken. I know how it feels to be traumatized. I know how it feels to go through all this stuff and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. So no, but, uh, against myself, yeah, I've wholeheartedly considered that in my twenties. Absolutely. What made you not do it? Morbid curiosity. I wanted to see if it ended right now, would it be a problem? Maybe. Right. But if I kept going. What would change? And, you know, I could always revisit that if I ever needed to, as far as suicide is concerned. But my daily thing, even still today, is what's going to happen tomorrow? It's sheer curiosity that keeps me going. The fact that things keep getting better, it's been a really consistent thing across my life. When things get worse, it's about to get better. Things have to get bad before they get better. It's the way of the world. It's the thing that makes you do the change. Things have to get bad before they get better. Darkness for the dawn, I guess, you know. Can you share your views on the evolution of society and how shootings keep happening? The evolution of society? It feels like that there are people in the United States that want these things to keep going, that they want these things to keep happening. For these people, it, it really does boil down to this. They like their toys. They like to be able to go and they like to be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want with their toys. That to me comes down to a breakdown in empathy. They have no idea what it's like to go through something like this. And so therefore they think that everybody is just trying to come after them and trying to take away their toys. Uh, they are toys. They are not tools. They are toys. Those things were put on the earth in order to do one thing. 
and that's kill. Whether that be killing animals, killing intruders, killing people, whatever, those things are only meant to kill. You train by shooting targets, but you're training to kill. That's the only thing that those things have ever been placed on this earth for. With that in mind, I don't understand why in the United States, that people are allowed to have such ridiculous things. I would love to see those things go away at a federal level. I would love to see all of these things start to make a dent in the problem that we've had since all earnest since 1999, but before that too. We have to start doing something about all of this. Inaction is not action. Inaction is going to cause more deaths. It's fucking crazy. It's upsetting. And that seems to me like a de-evolution of society because if we were evolving, we'd be doing something and fuck anything, right? We can't do anything on a federal level because there are interest groups that fund elections that have more power than the representative democracy that we're supposed to have. There are so many different people who look out for themselves instead of everyone else. There's such a fucking problem with that. It just basically comes down to when are we ever going to be able to regulate these things, start making a dent in this. What I'm saying is that the evolution of society and the access to information you would think, you would think with everything coming up as far as like being more empathetic to your fellow human, the idea would be, yeah, that makes sense to everyone, right? If you're nicer to people, people will be nicer to you, right? All of this, the number one priority would be like, we've got to end the senseless ending of human lives. I don't think it's an evolution of society. I think it's a de-evolution of society by staying in the same place. Pisses me off. Can you share uh, your views on the idea of arming teachers? Arming teachers. Okay, so you're asking a person who has to deal with these people. I say these people, but students every single day. And they pour their love and affection into these students every single day. And you're asking them untrained to be able to start firing into a crowd. Well, let me tell you about what it's like being fired at. It is disorienting. You can't fathom what's about to happen next. We didn't know where gunshots were coming from, let alone where to run to, right? The instinct is survival. It is not fight. It is surviving. You're at a massive disadvantage. And I will tell you, and it's been proven time and time again, if you are an armed person in a situation and you have a gun and the police show up, you are going to be shot, period. If you don't harm an innocent student, and if you somehow have the fucking iron will without any kind of training, without any kind of background, you somehow have the iron will to stand up against gunfire toward yourself and others and pull a trigger on somebody that you care about, let's just face facts. That's not going to happen. That's a fucking Johnny Bravo pseudo-military... I'm stronger than everyone sort of mentality. The idea that that would be actually viable, actually be able to do something in that situation, I'll give you a one to 2% chance that somebody has that kind of fucking iron will to be able to do that. I'm here to tell you that's not what's going to happen. And then if everyone is armed in a classroom situation, let's just be honest about it here. Like, okay, so for arming everyone, then 
why wouldn't students 18 and older who are legally able to buy firearm, why shouldn't they be armed? Let's just arm everyone, right? So if we're arming everyone, the situation comes up where, okay, cool. Now everyone's firing into a crowd. So now we just have more bullets in the air and more bullets in the air is not what's going to do this. People end mass shootings really consistently by tacking the assailant while they're reloading. As a matter of fact, I think I saw a study one time that said 80% of all mass shootings are not stopped by quote, good guys with guns. They're stopped with unarmed fucking citizens who attack the attacker. Can you share your views on what should change and how mental health is a big part of the problem that is not addressed? I'll use myself as an example, and I've used this before, and I've talked about this before uh, with you, is that especially for men, we are told that we shouldn't have feelings. We can't have feelings. Crying in public, crying on an interview. <laughs> It's not, that's not something that we do as men, right? That's, um, so fucking harmful to not just men, but everyone around us. I think that it is, he's not my blood uncle, but one of my favorite people in this world, uh, my uncle Vince was born in Cori, Italy, which is west of Rome, a very small town. He taught me after the fact that it is not manly to hide your feelings. It is absolutely not something to do. Feelings and emotions are supposed to be betrayed. That's why we have them. Stuffing things down because society doesn't necessarily want you to feel that way is so fucking harmful. I don't know where the idea of this like Marlboro man, manly man thing came from. It's just so fucking stupid. It just really is. And the idea of it fucking harmed me for so long. The fact that the thought had crossed my mind when I was broken and not feeling anything. This is what a man is supposed to feel. This is what a man is supposed to act like. Not happy, not sad, especially in public, stoic in the face of adversity for all time. And that is just wrong. You should have feelings. You should voice those feelings. If somebody's doing harm, to you emotionally and you just take it because you're supposed to be a man, right? That idea is just so fucking backwards. People can't fix things that they do if they don't know that what they're doing is bogging you. Even the relationship that I'm in right now is like so built on that. I can't do anything for her unless she tells me something's wrong and she can't do anything for me unless I tell her something's wrong and we support each other. It is the best relationship I've ever been in because we're so united on making sure that each other's needs are met. I mean, across the freaking board, like everything just ends up matching up so perfectly. I can express my wants and needs and she can do the same. And we each do our best to, to do that. And we're not fucking perfect. That's for fucking sure. But it's so nice to be in a relationship that's centered around mental health and centered around each other and not one person or the other. And I really am enjoying it. And sometime in September, October, I get to marry that person. It's just the beginning. But as far as mental health and how it doesn't get addressed, I view mental health that way. It's like, it's flossing. Sometimes you really got to do like a really good job. You really got to get in there and get things cleaned up. But other times it's just, you know, maintenance and just making sure that you have the right vocabulary to explain what you're thinking. I think that that's a big fucking problem for a lot of people, 
It's explaining what they're thinking, explaining what they're feeling. Again, if other people don't know what you're thinking or feeling, they don't know that they've committed a transgression against you, right? And it's so important to be able to say what we're thinking and feeling out loud. Where do you think violence and hopelessness come from? And how can we help kids who experience it? Violence and hopelessness. So I'll start with uh, hopelessness because I think one begets the other. I think a lot comes from isolation, right? Whether that's self-imposed or that's imposed upon them. Isolation is definitely, definitely an issue. How to help kids get out of isolation, you know, that's, especially if it's self-imposed, that's very hard to get them moving in the right direction. Again, I would love to see more kids, more children be put in a position of being aware of what mental health professionals do, how they do it, what you're supposed to get out of it. And if you take it seriously, I don't know that you'll always be able to help every case of isolation. It's something that we as society have to work on a lot. The feeling of hopelessness can come in several different ways, but I think that the isolation and the hopelessness can be capitalized on. And I think that that's something that happens quite a bit too. You know, a very, very large majority of people that commit mass shootings are male, right? The same thing that hurt me, the toxic masculinity stuff, not being able to talk about your feelings. When somebody comes along and they give you the tools to talk about your feelings, it's the wrong type of person. My country, especially, we are now seeing a lot of that people who are disillusioned, isolated, either self-imposed or because of their worldview are being picked up by these groups that make them feel more involved and a part of something bigger and radicalized. I hope that people would, if they feel isolated, to reach out to friends and family. And I would encourage them to be in something that's bigger than yourself, but something that's healthy and something that's not going to you know, end up hurting somebody else or yourself. I don't think, and I truly believe this, I don't think that there's a political party trying to drive a country into the ground. They're doing what they think in their way on how to make the country to uh, borrow a really shitty turn of phrase great again, right? But I think that that's the thing that gets lost in all of it. All of the fighting, all of the bickering is that when you see your fellow countrymen as the other, then there is no chance for healing. There's no chance for success. That even goes back to Columbine. We've been arguing what the best way is to prevent school shootings for so long. We've been gripped in inaction. Everybody thinks that the other person is trying to ruin the country over it. And it's so far removed from reality and truth that it's laughable almost, you know, right? As if everybody understood each other and everybody expressed their feelings and everybody understood that they were feelings, you know, they're not laws. I can respect your feelings. I don't have to agree with your opinion. And I think that to me would be the beginning of what it would take to get happiness for everyone is that an understanding and respect of other people's feelings. How? Do you think we can help kids believe in life, love life, value life? It starts with having fun and having fun with as many different people as you possibly can. My daughter is so interested in languages. She has a picture of the Eiffel Tower on her room. And she romanticizes about being a Parisian and she's on uh, Duolingo trying to learn French. And every once in a while she comes to me and she'll say something in French and I'm like, Nope, don't know. I took four years of uh, French and I still can't, I can't speak it. But like, I think that that's one thing that we talk about in my house a ton is other cultures and how the world looks 
from a much broader perspective because my worldview in small town Littleton was so closed. We just didn't have access to information because of what year it was. She has access to all of these things and all this information. And I want her to not feel like she's trapped here. This is the only place for her. I feel like she can learn another language. She can go to other countries. She can do whatever she wants to do whenever she wants to do it. And I think that that's really how I view my impact on the next generation is that I don't want people to think that they're alone in this world. There is a group out there for everyone and there's positive groups out there for everyone. What would your advice be to any trauma survivor? Get help now. I just think that getting help and getting help now will save you so much time in the future and so many breakdowns and so many panic attacks, so much disassociation, so much like all of the other stuff that comes with PTSD. Like I could fucking walk into a movie theater. It is my superpower. I can tell you where every single fucking bathroom is, every single place to hide, and where every single exit is. And I don't go into movie theaters that don't have more than one exit. There has to be several. I would like four specifically. And that's my mentality everywhere I walk. Everything I do is PTSD informed. But if I would have gotten help and I would have taken it seriously right after Columbine, I think that I could have saved myself decades of hurt and brokenness and not feeling anything if I just did that one thing. Yeah, I guess that's my advice to, to other survivors. What would you say to a trauma survivor who's been struggling for years and feels like it's too late to get better? It's not. It's not too late to get better. Figure out, again, an informed trauma therapist. Take it as seriously as you can, because it is a fight for your life at this point. It's never too late to get better. Your brain is amazing and its elasticity and how it can help you heal physically and emotionally. Your brain is a very powerful tool that you should use. Use it. Get the help that you need and get your brain back into a place where you can feel again. But coming from somebody who has had so many people overdose and so many people commit suicide around him, trust me, more people love you than you're giving yourself credit for. Thank you so much, Zach. Could you share a bit about the person you are now and what do you love? What makes you happy? Yeah, I am, fuck, how old am I? 42 years old. God damn it. You don't feel 42 years old, Zach? <laughs> I fucking hope not. I am a fucking giant child. Being a brewer fills my life with so much happiness and joy that I would never want to do anything else. I have a daughter. She's 10. She is the absolute light of my life. She's hysterical. She is my little mini me. She looks like me and she talks like me. She's been in more breweries than most adults. She's even passed rudimentary tests <laughs> that most bartenders would look at and be like, oh my God, what is this? You know, she, she did that when she was uh, eight. <laughs> she does so well with empathy and the empathy for her fellow students. She's wise beyond her age. Like she's so in tuned with her emotions that she'll tell me, you know, how she's feeling almost every morning, which is great. Such a great thing to be able to pass on to my kiddo. I have an amazing fiance. I have an amazing soon to be stepdaughter as well. And they are amazing people. I have the ability to make beer every day. I have the ability to play music every day. I'm a guitar player first, but 
I have this weird talent of being able to pick up an instrument and learn how to play it pretty quickly. I love doing that stuff. I love grabbing a stringed instrument or a brass instrument or something of this nature and just being able to just like sit down and just work it all out. It's fun. It's one of the, my passions in life. That's the thing that I think is so fucking great about my life right now. I went from so broken and not feeling anything to literally my life is filled with my passions. And that's fucking amazing. Is there anything you want to add about any part of your story? No, just maybe like a, a message of encouragement. I'll ask your listeners to ask themselves, like, what are you doing today? Is what you're doing today, does it make you feel passionate? What does it make you feel like? And if the answer is, I don't know, you're doing the wrong fucking thing. Go talk to a mental health professional. Go talk to anyone in your life that can help you and give you guidance and start getting on the path of these are the things that I love. These are the things that make me feel something, makes me feel passionate, makes me feel like I want to get up and do another fucking day. Do those things. Coming from somebody who literally couldn't feel anything because of a trauma response in their brain, it sucks to have that feeling. It sucks to have a shit job, gives you no satisfaction in life. And if you can't fill every single day with at least some sort of satisfaction, it is literally the universe telling you, It's time to change. You don't always have to do the hard thing. Think about the things that make you the happiest in your life and pursue them. Every day, every single day is a gift. Thank you so much for listening to Columbine, them, and you, and me, and everybody. Take care, and you'll be hearing from us again very soon.